Welcome to What's the Word Downtown, a weekly podcast dedicated to mining the depths of the word, a word that's sharp and active in downtown Tyler, Texas. Join Eric, Matt, and Mike as we get the word out at Bethel. Well, good morning and welcome to uh, What's the Word Downtown. I'm Matt. This is Pastor Eric Barton, Bethel Bible, downtown Tyler, Texas. Indeed. Glad to be here. Looking into Genesis, we have been. That was very Yoda. That was very, <laughs> and necessarily so. Jesus you know, every quest been. has the uh, the accompanying mentor, and so you have That's your right. Yoda there just That's to right. sort of remind me. Okay, so the offering of Isaac. Uh, if we we're jumping back into Genesis, what you preached last week was essentially the offering of Isaac, and uh, this one of the clearest pictures that we see foreshadowings of our Jesus, right. our Christ, uh, that I've seen so far. I mean, it seems to be that this is, uh, we have to remember that Moses, 430 years after, mm-hmm. uh, is now writing uh, about the preceding, or 430 years, right. uh, explaining to these Israelites in the wilderness who they are by virtue of who God is. Correct. And they being a reflection of what he has shown them. Even though not not a perfect reflection, we've seen we've seen uh, Abraham and Sarah zig and zag, uh, but we've seen the faithfulness of God plow on through through a whole bunch of broken people who are clearly undeserving of God's attention and affection, which is good news for us. That God identifies Himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Mm-hmm doesn't stun us like it should. It made Moses tremble when he's confronted by God's address of himself Mm -hmm. at the burning bush. It would be like if if people in East Texas in 2021 said, oh, well, we worship the God of Matt, Mike, and Eric. Mm -hmm. And be like, why why is he calling himself that? That's way too profane. But that's sort of the condescension that part of God's godness is his condescension into the lowly undeserving created. And so Moses, under the inspiration of the Spirit, beautifully pens this to the Israelites to show this is the kind of God we have that condescends to our love. He's incarnate. He incarnates. He enters into our grit and our grime. Look at this picture that's pointing us forward 2,000 years. Now, does Moses understand that God's going to send the second member of the Trinity and be in I don't even think Moses can fully grasp that. He says in Deuteronomy 18, there will one come after me, a prophet that you must listen to and follow him, obey him. But I still don't even think that Moses fully grasps that God himself will be the propitiation, the sacrifice, the satisfaction for God himself. And yet we see that already Moses telling them this is the picture. So if we go back to Genesis 3, where Adam and Eve have fallen, and there's, it's necessary for them to essentially to cover up their nakedness, yeah. uh, they, there's a sacrifice. There's, right, because they can't cover it themselves. It has to be covered for them. And blood must be spilt. Correct. Right, in order for them to cover, they've got to kill, an anim- kill animals. Uh, and, it, and so Moses is... But to, to tell but me... To new- but yeah. they don't kill it. God does. 
which is horrifying. I mean, we, we sort of glance past that in Genesis 3 and 4. They don't kill the animal. God does. So even that is preparatory. Well, that's what, I, that's what I'm saying. 430 years now, Moses is talking to these Israelites about something like the development of a sacrificial path mm -hmm. to God. Right. And this, far from God killing an animal, now God seems to be, fast forward from the garden to Abraham and Sarah, right. God seems to be killing uh the evidence of his faithfulness seems, seems to, be, to be seems to be putting to death, or at least asking I, I, uh, Abraham to put to death what looked like the dream that God had given—not dream, but the promise. The promise, the oath yeah, that, for sure, that God had given. You see the first flicker of it in the garden, or actually outside the garden, when something innocent dies for the guilty. Mm -hmm. Right. We're going to see the omega moment of this, of course, at the cross. But what we see is the first flicker. With something innocent dies for the guilty after Adam and Eve fall. Then you're going to see this story of Abraham and Isaac anticipate what will ultimately happen at Calvary. Mm -hmm. You're going to see Moses writing down the Levitical priesthood, the manual of the priesthood, illustrate. So Abraham and Isaac anticipate. Leviticus illustrates Calvary demonstrates. Nice. Right, right? I like that. So you've got this thread that weaves through. It really does start Genesis 3 that's pointing, 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 sometimes mysteriously, sometimes unpredictably, sometimes ununderstandably. But Abraham and Isaac, Genesis 22, anticipates, Leviticus illustrates, Calvary demonstrates this is what God is like. He's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Even as uh, Abraham negotiates for Lot and his family, you you. you Threaded yeah. out that beautiful moment of this inversion. Could one righteous man save all? Yes. And it's your, the answer, of course, is yes. We see that. We revel in that. That's what. That's where we live and move and have our being. And uh, these people in the wilderness uh, are on the precipice of entering into the promise. Right. But not yet. But not yet. And you will wait. And you don't turn back. To Pharaoh, or you'll turn to salt like mm -hmm. Lot's wife. You mm -hmm. won't even have a name. Right, Mrs. Dash. <laughs> uh, and if you look forward and wait expectantly, but in weakness, right? Because there's a difference between waiting and grumbling and, and you know what I'm saying? And because just like the snake, they all get snake bit, the idea of dissatisfaction, the idea of we should already be in the promised land by now, the idea of this manna is really tastes the same as yesterday and I can only assume will taste the same tomorrow, it's not pleasing me. It's not satisfying me. Right. These ideas come in like a snake. And what do we? how do we battle that back but by remembering remembering God's faithfulness. Bingo. Even in the midst of what he doesn't seem to be acting as quick as you expected. Exactly. So maintaining the long view, preserving the big picture, right? This is Moses writing this to these people who by this point have hardened their hearts and they did not enter into the promise mm. at Kadesh Barnea. Mm. And so Moses is writing, hey, God is faithful. This is why Every week we've been in this sermon series in Genesis, we've just repeated the refrain, God is faithful. Why am I doing that? Because they didn't think he was faithful. They got to the precipice, as you said, of the promised land and the promised prosperity, and they said, ooh, 
but the circumstances look like they're too much. There's giants in there, there's caverns and there's canyons and there's all sorts of calamities. God said, and? They said, no, we can't go in. And so they paid that consequence. But God is faithful. Despite what we can discern, despite what we can detect, when God says, it's his self-identification. I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You can trust me. Go in there. Giants? What are giants? They're just slightly taller versions of you. But I'm God. There's nothing. You can trust. And so what happens to us? Same. We forget that he's faithful and we grasp. Because we we begin to forget that faith is the substance of things unseen. Correct. Correct. Right? Because uh, all of the evidence around us sometimes, or most of the evidence that we train our eyes to see, only exacerbates our worry and our disconnectedness and our convoluted thinking. Yep. And we get turned upside down. The only steady stream, the only true north, the only real compass we have is the faithfulness of God. It's it's And it's referred to always, and necessarily so, it's Peter on the waves. Hmm. Listen, it's impossible to walk on water, especially if it's a storm-like condition. And so Peter gets out and says, this storm, I'm, I'm on water. And you almost have the same idea coming back where Jesus goes, and? Hmm. Like, so? Yes, the waves are a big deal. Yes, the surface tension of H2O is a big deal. But I'm God. We've... We live in a world right now where there's so much upheaval, it seems like, and <laughs> yeah. so much uncertainty and so much news that you can trust and news that you don't know if you can trust. Right. I, I wonder somehow, um, I guess I just wonder if what, what Moses is showing, it doesn't, doesn't it really apply to us today that in the very, very same ways? I think I really actually lost what I was going to say before I started about all of the upheaval. <laughs> I call that we don't do true. editing here, by the way. That's so right. if one of us goes, we don't know what to do. We just, we just to, go raw. We just keep to carry on. But, but by the way, to your point. Though, yeah, just to, maybe to you knew what I was going to say. I There's telepathy as well. Existing. Empathy, telepathy, or just history. Yeah. The world has never not been upheaval. Mm -hmm. There is no golden age. Mm. The world has never not been in upheaval, crisis, turmoil, calamity, death, violence, disease, hatred, relational strife, financial woe. Mm -hmm. It's always been there. We have a tendency to look back and think, man, it was so much better or calmer. No, it wasn't. Mm -hmm. We just didn't have as much media attention back then. To quote the great theologian Barney Rubble, hmm. those ignorant of history are destined to repeat it. One of my great Flintstones episodes is when Barney Rubble quotes that, being that they're Stone Age people. He's quoting the original writer. That's why... We look at Genesis. That's why we study Abraham, because people will say, I don't need all that. Just give me the New Testament. No, 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 no. The New Testament is pointing back to what Jesus did. But just as powerfully, the Old Testament is pointing forward to what Jesus did. They, they are equally relevant in pointing to Messiah. Yes, and we have children. And we have children. And when we have children... And this is what I this is I think is what I was heading towards with all of the upheaval. It seems like a less certain world than it did when I was growing up, and I have to I have to remember that I was a child then. Right, right. <laughs> so now I'm an adult with children, and what do I want? I want that certain world that I had growing up for my kids. Right. 
And so what do I do? What, what do I do then? Because now I'm an adult and I see that the world is uncertain. And I see that it depends on faith. Can I recreate for them? Hold them back from this world? Can I, can I try to in, in, encase them in, a, in some sort of fairy tale understanding of, of what's actually happening? Or do I avail them to the world and teach them the faithfulness of God? And it seems like Isaac... I mean, I know he's 25. I know he's a grunt, but he's still a child to the, to the father. Right. And so when Abraham marches his son up the hill uh, to presumably be sacrificed, though Abraham has faith that God will deliver. But faith. Abraham does. Abraham. Isaac We doesn't. don't know what Isaac believes. Here's what Isaac trusts. Yeah. He trusts his father. And I don't mean God the father. Yeah. Isaac, by this point... Trusts his dad, despite all the craziness. Now, that's instructive. I hear parents, well-meaning, God-loving, Jesus-preaching, Bible-reading, church-attending, casserole-baking Christians, yes. say things like, we got to teach our kids the Bible stories. we got to get them in church. we got to get them in a youth group. We gotta, like, stop. No, 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 no. Your kids need you in Christ more than anything else in the cosmos. Whatever Isaac knew... Of God, he knew it through watching and observing his mother and his father day in, day out. In, in the banal, profane times of sleeping and going to the bathroom and having meals together and chastising their servants and herding their flocks, Isaac knew of the faithfulness of God from watching them in the liminal spaces of daily life. See, children come into the world assuming that everything's okay. Pretty soon, they perceive that it isn't. And why do they perceive that? Because they see mom and dad or whomever, they see the, the calamitous reactions to circumstances, and they begin to think, oh, you know what? Things are uncertain and unsettled around me. Things are not okay. Mm -hmm. But for children who have parents that don't just confess or profess that God is faithful, but actually live as though God is faithful, that is a stabilizing, calming of the waters. That's right. And it creates an environment in which the child can thrive. Isaac marches up the mountain looking at his dad going, this is weird. I don't understand this, but my dad's got this. Mm -hmm. My dad's got this. Mm -hmm. Abraham knows by now 50 years walking with God and stumbling and fumbling forward at every given turn. But 50 years in, Abraham trusts God, which is why at the end of this incredible episode, God says, now I see. Not that I wasn't quite so sure, but now you've demonstrated not like a math teacher was this a test, but like a goldsmith was this a test, a refining, a polishing, a honing, a heating up of Abraham's faith to say, now you get it. And the blessing of that is that Isaac trusts his dad. A parent who lives like God is faithful will be the greatest blessing to his children. Because he doesn't withhold reality from them. Correct. Because little by little, children will begin to perceive that they are being lied to or that they are being fleeced. That's right. Or that they are being sold something that is not real. And then disrespect for the parents begins to, you know, cut down the sort of, I mean, of he's known as Father Abraham. And why is he a father? He's a father in the faith. Absolutely. You know what I mean? But if all we ever do, if all we ever do as parents is indoctrinate our kids, by the time they're 15, they start hearing the jingle of car keys, they're gone. Mm. Our kids don't need us to indoctrinate them. Our kids need the gospel. Mm. 
and not an articulation of the gospel. Mm. They need the gospel. The good news of what God has done in Christ to redeem us to himself, full stop. It's and that translates between gnosis and epinosis. That's exactly experiential right. knowledge that's versus right. just head knowledge. What we did in the latter part of the 20th century was equip people to indoctrinate people as though it was gnosis. Just jam them up with data and information and that'll redeem. No, no. We don't need indoctrination. Doctrine's great. Theology's great. I'm a huge teacher and lover of theology and doctrine. But that's not where we stop. We take that and we deposit it into wisdom. Wisdom is knowledge and data rightly applied. And ultimately education, educre, to draw out. There's the education of Abraham in that he was drawn out of his That's land. exactly right. And his education is this forward leading. God seems to be pulling the best of Abraham by faith out, yeah. forgiving him along the way when he zigs and zags. But there, the education of Abraham seems to be uh, manifest in the faith of Isaac. And that's how God works. God doesn't just give us a workbook and say, now everybody read this, and we're all on the same page, right? We good? We good. That is never how God works. Yes, he gives Moses the law, but the law, and we see it even 400 years beforehand in Abraham, it is such that the faithfulness of God will be understood, handed down as a procreation in offspring. He'll say at the end of the Old Testament in Malachi, what is God's desire? Godly offspring. That doesn't just mean pure, moral people being produced. It's not a breeding campaign. It's that people understand the faithfulness of God and live thus. That's God's plan for the world. That's why we say God's plan for your life is the local church, because that is producing people who live as though God is a faithful God. And when we fail to do that, societies crumble. God's not trying to indoctrinate people. And so it's a slow process where people who live like it's true produce people who live like it's true. And they are the attestations, the agents, and the ambassadors of the kingdom of God. Which is why when we talk about children, we have a Western sense that mom and dad are contributors of the material bits of a child. At conception, mom and dad do what mom and dad do. And babies are born, and then God sort of takes this cosmic turkey baster and shoots in the soul, and that's God's job. And we, as Westerners, we just assume that, which is why we have so much confusion over rights of the unborn and all this stuff. Because in the West, we say, well, scientifically, we procreate physical stuff. God, if there is a God, he handles the spiritual bits. That's not the biblical model. No, we beget. And we he's, beget. He's pulling. We contribute physical bits, spiritual bits. We contribute material and immaterial. And so we create offspring. We are co-creators and procreators. And as we live lives in front of them, they catch the image of God in and on us. And that's what this world needs. So these stories of Abraham are not just Bible stories with clip art on flannel grams. It is, this is God's plan for the world. So if it seems like I'm yelling that it's a really big deal, it's because it's a really big deal. It's a really big deal. And I was, I had said we had somebody over to the house for the first time the other day. And there was, oh, so You've never had anyone at your house? No, no, no. We had these particular people at the house. They said, oh, your house is very, very, you know, it's very nice. And I said, well, it's a reflection of probably millions of micro decisions. Correct. That, Good. that have made the home what it is. And 
you know, those decisions haven't all been born of faith, but the most beautiful ones have been. Right. And the manifestation of our home is, you know, our, is, a, is really a manifestation of our marriage. And that's also, that's the way that not only do we beget or beget the children, we also, by faith, nurture our home and space and, and our place begetting. and our begetting yep. so that children are nurtured in, uh, in an environment saturated by the faithfulness of God. That's so good. I, because that'll, that'll preach. Because otherwise, you might as well put them to death because yeah. there's no hope. Because if you tie a chain around someone's neck, you are putting them to death. And so a continual wagging of law of you should, you should, you ought, mm -hmm. a kid at some point goes, you know what? There's no life there. All of my friends, all of the pop songs, all of the TikTok, <laughs> they seem free and having joy. Mm -hmm. Why are we so dour and miserable? Because we should, we should, and we ought. You have to do, you have to do. Instead, and dear God, don't make the mistakes I made that right. I might not really feel God has super, has superintended for my good and his glory. Exactly. You know, right. it's like the, the, we want to lay an environment that protects our kids from ever having to hurt the way we've hurt. And we think, well, that totally makes sense. The best way to redeem my hurt is to make sure that my kid never does the dumb thing that I do. But the overreach oh, that is possible man. in that begins to push through what Henri Nouwen calls the inner mystery of the child's heart. Mm -hmm. That is that space where they have to work with God. And if you kick down that door and tell them you got to ought and do and should and why don't you and you know there's you're you're somehow quenching the spirit within. Yep. You know, to get very personal and practical, I have the privilege and the the horror sometimes <laughs> as a pastor of talking to families and talking to parents whose kids have gone totally off track. So they think, yeah, I thank you for the clarification. Right? Yeah. And they parents will recount to me sometimes in the hearing of the adolescent, sometimes not in the hearing of the sure. adolescent. I can't believe they're doing these things. That's not how they were taught. We taught them better than that. They will say, we taught them better than that. And I'll sit there and look at them mm -hmm. with a smug look on my face. Mm -hmm. And I'll say, what, 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 what is it? Why are you smiling like that for? Say, and it's precisely how they were taught. It might not be the words that you said, but they caught, they caught everything. They, they exist in an environment that is perfectly optimized and engineered to get the results they got. And no parent wants to hear that. But that's reality. The child is the perfect fruit, the perfect produce, the perfect product of an environment and a system that is optimized to get the results it gets. And so when the parents are in this existential crisis of how did I get there? I have to sound very much like a pastor and go, well, was the faithfulness of God and the gospel of Jesus lived out in the liminal spaces between breakfast and dinner? Was it lived out in the conversations as you're watching Netflix? Or is it lived out when you all enter the home and you all scatter and never actually have a meaningful conversation, mm -hmm. but you trusted us to teach your kids about Noah's Ark twice a year? Mm -hmm. They were taught to do exactly what they're doing. All that little rant is to say, what we see in Abraham is a 50-year, generally speaking, to quote um, Eugene Peterson, obedience in the same direction with fumbles and stumbles, but 50 years of walking with God. You get to the end of Abraham's life and Abram will say, I walked with God all these years. Did he? I mean, that's pretty generous self-assessment. And yet he did. 
He failed and he fell, but he walked with God. God was there with him in his failure and in his... Always, and God redeemed it and blessed it. And so I think Isaac sees that. I even think Ishmael sees that. Now, he goes off on his own and does this whole thing, which we'll cover briefly next week. But Abraham's long obedience in the same direction... And I don't mean obedience like moralism and behavior modification. Cognizance that God is with him. Yes. That's what Abraham gave to Isaac. And so when God identifies himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that's what he means. It's an astonishing condescension that God would enter into the progeny of our species. But that's the kind of God that he is. And then we see that ultimately manifest in Jesus. So, man, these stories are much more than stories. This is all about preparing us for the coming of Messiah and for and looking at that and passing it on to our children. They're doctrinally preparatory. They're spiritually preparatory. They're psychologically Absolutely. preparatory. Relationally, experientially, we turn and we look at Jesus. We were just in our men's group this morning talking about in Ephesians 5 that we are to walk around with awestruck wonder. The Greek is, it's, it's fear. Now, most of us, when we think of Jesus, don't have fear, and that's a good thing. But we also don't have awestruck wonder, and that's a bad thing. Most of us think wrongly and too little about Jesus. We think of him as a user-friendly Jesus. He's blonde hair, blue-eyed, narrow nose, <laughs> wears a robe, has Birkenstocks, probably went to Berkeley, might play the sitar, we're not real sure, and so we don't walk around with this awestruck wonder of Jesus. So instead, we get to look at Genesis 22, look at Isaac voluntarily going up the hill. Well, don't you remember? Don't you remember? Or have you had, have you had a dark night of the soul where one of your children <laughs> was suffering? Of course. And, and it's like we see that time and again with Jairus' daughter. Uh, in in Jesus, yeah. with Jesus, then the, the, so many spaces where as just about as close to the nerve of human frailty that you can get is somewhere close to uh, a parent who has no control to relieve the suffering of the child. Right. I mean, that is as close to Madness. the bone. And, yeah. and 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 if we lived there all the time, we'd be crazy. Correct. But because he knows the deepest needs of our souls and the deepest spaces of our frailty. He gives us a story like this right. to speak to his presence with us when we can't keep our children from suffering and we can't seem to course correct their stupidity or the consequences yeah. of their bad decisions. But this is something that is readying us for the gospel. Exactly. Precisely. Yeah. So to go on one more yeah, closing yeah, rant yeah, here. Please. If we read these narratives of Abraham and Isaac going up the mountain, having sacrifice. And then we read of the, 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 the substitution of the ram caught by its horns when Isaac says, Father, where is the lamb? And Abraham says, Jehovah Jireh, God himself will provide, or God will provide for himself. And he does, there's a substitution there. But if we read that wonderful, marvelous story, and our takeaway is, I need to be like Abraham. I need to have more faith. Face plant. You fail before you even walk out the door. You missed it entirely. Unfortunately, that's most frequently how these things get taught and conveyed is, you need to go and be like Abraham. You need to go and be like Isaac. You need to go and be like David. No, no, never, never. We're not in the story. It points us to Jesus. We look at this and we see the obedience and the yieldedness of the son 
for the will of the Father. As the Son carries the wood of sacrifice, the Father carries the fire and the dagger, the judgment and the destruction. The Father does it. The Father has to turn his face away. The ultimately. Father turns his face away. The Son says, where is the Lamb? And we talked about it on Sunday where Jesus kneeling, agonizing in Gethsemane. Where is the Lamb? And the answer is silence. But then we look at the end of the book in Revelation 1, and we're introduced again to the living Lord Jesus, who's covered in blood, standing as though a lamb slain, but whose eyes are like blazing fire, whose hair is white as wool, who has the marks of his death still on him, but redeemed and glorious, who lays his right hand on John's head. That's the kind of Jesus we need to look to to have awestruck wonder. Mm -hmm. And so if we ever read our Bible and we think the takeaway is just have more faith, stop. There's grace for that too. Rewind. Instead, the way we always try to illustrate this is I can't have more faith in this chair. I can't just tell myself volitionally, intentionally, decisionally, have more faith, have more faith. That's nonsense. That's not helpful. We've done that for 150 years in the Western church and it's, I think, scattered the saints. Just telling people to have more faith is like telling people jump up in the air and now you got to stick there. Mm -hmm. You can't because there's gravity. We, we, we can't do that. Instead, what we want to use scripture, because what God wants to use scripture is to tell people, spend some more time with the chair. Mm -hmm. Look at the chair. It's been well made. It's got precision carpentry. It's got very strong bolts. The, the glue that holds it together, the, the engineering behind it, that chair is all, spend some time with the chair. And then you'll never worry about having to sit on the chair or not. You'll just have faith because of the amount of time you've spent with the object of your faith. That's what we get to come to Scripture. We look at Abraham and Isaac that points us to Jesus. We look at Jesus. We look back at Jesus. We spend time with him. We turn our eyes upon him. Look full in his wonderful face. Hebrews 12, we look at Jesus, the author or the captain or the champion or the perfecter of our faith. The more time we spend looking at him, we have faith. That's right. That's right. Guys, we will see you Sunday for more of the same. Genesis. The faithfulness of God in Genesis in our lives. The God of Matthew, Michael, and Eric. Hopefully the God of all of you as well. <laughs> and Megan and, and, and Susan and Heather. Heather Praise God. Yeah. God bless. We'll see you all.